0: Hello, hello everyone uh, on this call. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, a very warm welcome to all of you, uh, to the LSE virtually this time. My name is uh, Piroska Nagy Moháci, and I'm the academic program director at the Institute of Global Affairs at the London School of Economics School of Public Policy. This is now the 14th event that we host under our LSC series on COVID uh, crisis management, crisis response. We started back in March, lo- like looks like ages ago, uh, when at some important p- parts of the corners of the world, uh, maybe the UK, maybe the US, policymakers still uh, were downplaying the severity of the pandemics. But that was then, and here we are, And I'm very pleased to see uh, many um, returning uh, customers of ours uh, to this series, but also um, the newcomers uh, uh, who are joining us for the very first time. This event uh, today, we are uh, co-organizing together with uh, the European Institute at the LSE and uh, the LSE School of Public Policy. And today, we are very pleased to welcome to our series uh, Professor uh, Thomas Philippon. Um, he is the Max Hain Professor of Finance at the New York uh, University Stern School of Business. Uh, he was named the top 25 economists under 45 by the IMF uh, just a few years ago. He won the 2013 Bernanke Prize for the Best Euro- European Economist under 40. And he has other uh, major awards under his belt, such as the Michael Brennan and uh, BlackRock Award. Uh, to uh, name another one, he is an academic advisor uh, to the Finance Stability Board, um, and uh, finally, uh, just to um, uh, for the record, he graduated from Ecole Polytechnique, and he received his PhD in economics from MIT. Uh, he is well known for his work on the Eurozone crisis, financial regulation, uh, financial uh, resolution mechanisms. And, of course, the market power of large firms. And this is what brings uh, him today to LSE, uh, to to this series. Uh, He's presenting uh, his new book, uh, The Great Reversal, How America Gave Up on Free Markets. Um, Not to preempt what he's going to say, but he will be focusing uh, on the importance of the constantation of corporate power and market power. as as a major problem, as a key problem uh, of the American economy. Um, Meanwhile, uh, he uh, informs us that actually, um, Europe has become more competitive over the years, uh, so to speak, beating the US at its own game. So let's hear about that. And let's hear also about how these uh, important trends that he has identified and puts out in his book has been affected or to what extent uh, been perhaps changed and challenged by the ongoing COVID crisis. After uh, Professor uh, Philippon, we will hear from uh, our own Dr. Uh, Angelo Martelli. Uh, He's from the LSE, uh, assistant professor in the European um, and international uh, political economy at the European Institute uh, of the LSE. Angelo will provide comments, uh, looking particularly um, uh, at these issues from the European angle. Angelo received his PhD uh, from the LSC, and he is one of our rising uh, stars. Just a few housekeeping matters. Uh, number one, Twitter users, uh, please use the uh, hashtag uh, for today's event as for the series, hashtag LSECOVID19. Number two, this online event is being recorded and will be made available uh, by Technical difficulties, we hope none, Um, so it will be posted, and it is also being live-streamed on Facebook. And third, as usual uh, with our series, there will be a chance for you to put your own questions uh, to our speakers, to submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, although in my screen actually is the top, so please just find it and, and, and put your question. This will, this will be, be compiled uh, very, by a very capable uh, team of uh, Caro and Jerry and submit it to, uh, to me and I will um, transmit them to our speakers. Please let us your, your, you know your name and affiliation. Uh, we are very eager to hear uh, from our alumni and from our students uh, Including incoming students and of course our, our usual um, uh, uh, viewers uh, But enough of the housekeeping matters. Uh, we are all excited and I'm delighted to hand it over to Professor Philippon
1: Well, thank you very much um, I wish I could be um, in London with you, it's always a great pleasure to um, you know, come to London and see many friends there. So I was looking forward to this book tour in the UK, but unfortunately, we're gonna do this book tour online. Um, I hope it's okay for everybody. <laughs> uh, so thank you all for joining, uh, and let me uh, give you a quick overview of the book, and then we can have a, a discussion. So first the title, why did I call that book The Great Reversal? Um, it's because it corresponds to my own experience coming to the U.S. I, um, I grew up in France, as you can tell from my accent. And then I um, actually I spent one year at the LSE before going to MIT. Um, and I was struck when I arrived in Boston for my PhD uh, that many of the goods and services that especially the ones that I valued as a student, that is buying a laptop computer, um, you know, having access to Internet, being able to. Uh, travel to conferences uh, via airplanes—all of these things were actually cheaper in the U.S. than in Europe, and oftentimes much cheaper. And this is surprising, of course, because the U.S. was—and still is—about 20% richer on a per capita basis than Europe, and therefore, because of the Balassa-Samuelson effect, you would expect uh, non-traded goods and services to be more expensive in the U.S., not cheaper. So clearly, something different was happening. And of course, what was happening is that these industries were more competitive. The consumers got a better deal because the market was working better because firms were competing harder by lowering their price and offering good quality product. So this is the U.S. that I discovered around 1999. 20 years later, much to my surprise, things have reversed. Many of these, in fact, all of the goods that I listed so far, which is telecom and transportation, have become cheaper in Europe uh, than in, in the U.S. And I don't mean cheaper by 5%. I mean cheaper by half. So, this is an example. This is the cost of broadband internet access. This is, that's what we are all using right now to be on this Zoom call, right? We are all connected, as well, I guess I suppose some of you could be uh, connected from, yeah, from uh, your uh, iPhones um, via wireless, but most of us, I assume, are connected via home or office uh, via broadband. This is what we pay per month for this connection. Essentially, every developed economy in the world is in the $30 to $40 per month range. And this is for the same quality, that is for the same speed. Okay? And the U.S. is twice that price. Okay? Um, this is, what that means is it's not just that Europe has caught up with the U.S., it's that the U.S. has fallen behind in terms of uh, having a good deal for consumers. Okay? Now, you might say, wait a minute, that's just one industry. In fact, it's one subset of the industry. Uh, is that true more generally? So let's look at the telecom industry in general. Um, this is the evolution of the telecom industry in the US since 1990. So you have the markup and the concentration ratio. The markup is just essentially the profit margins uh, per unit of revenue. And um, the concentration ratio is the top eight firm market share. And these are all in changes. Okay. So um, what you see is the markup went up by something like 40% uh, since 2000. This here is the sweet spot is what exactly when I arrived in the U.S. So that's why I was so impressed, because that's where I was at the low point in terms of concentration and prices. Um, since then, it's been drifting in the wrong direction with more concentration and higher prices and higher margins. And these changes are very large. Okay? The CR8 moved by 40 points. Okay? so That's a very large change. Um, now, this... Very large change is a little bit specific to that industry. If you look at the entire uh, corporate sector in the US, like this, uh, you see the same broad pattern, but of course, the magnitudes are somewhat smaller. So this is the profit margin divided by uh, value added or GDP uh, for the uh, non-financial corporates. Uh, very happy to talk about finance in the Q&A, but for much of the talk, I'm not going to spend too much time on finance because the you know, accounting issues are a bit different there, so I don't want to mix up finance and non-finance firms. So for now, let's just focus on the, the real economy. Um, so as you can see, the profit margin of businesses tended to fluctuate around 7% for uh, much of the post-war period. Um, it, of course, it moves around because typically when there's a recession, profits drop. So you can see the recession in 1980, 1990, the, the internet bubble collapse. Um, every time there is a big recession, uh, profits fall typically more than GDP and therefore the margin falls. But it was fluctuating around some average of 7%. Today, it's still fluctuating. This, is the, this drop here is the drop during the Great Recession. Of course, we're going to have another one here in the COVID crisis. Um, but the fluctuations happened er, around a higher mean of around 10%. So what we saw in telecom is not that surprising. In terms of concentration, Um, you can try to replicate the same kind of computation. So CR8 uh, for the entire private sector. It gets tricky because we don't always have the correct level of granularity to look at all the markets. So this is a bit too aggregated. Um, But you can see the broad patterns are very similar, which is somewhere in the late 90s, early 2000, concentration starts to go up in uh, many industries. And it's particularly strong in the non-manufacturing sector. I think... I think it's really mostly an issue of non-manufacturing. In manufacturing, uh, not only the increase is relatively smaller because it started from a higher baseline, so in relative terms, it's increased, less, but also it's also driven by a global trade. Um, to give you a sense of the method, so here the CR8 went up by about eight points for the non-manufacturing, starting from a baseline of around 20%. So say you move from 20 to 28. Uh, on average, for, for the... Uh, Corporate sector as a whole, the increase is about 25%. So that means if you had, say, uh, four main firms in a market competing before, now you're down to three on average, Okay, to give you a sense of the way. So it's not that every firm has disappeared, but it's that there is meaningful concentration. There is a little bit of controversy about exactly how you define these these measures, but I think the broad pattern is clear. Um, What is very controversial, on the other hand, is the interpretation of the fact. Okay, So, it is not at all obvious what you should conclude from, from these figures. Um, and to frame the debate, I find it useful to classify the explanations into groups, good versus bad concentration. Good concentration happens when the market leaders become even better. Okay, So, they were already pretty good, they already had high market shares, that's why they were the leaders, and then they just got even better. Okay. So when that happens, clearly their market shares are going to go up. You're going to see an increase in concentration, but it's not something you need to worry about, at least probably not, because it's driven by the fact that they just got better. Okay. So typically when you see that, this kind of concentration is going to come together with high productivity growth. Okay. That's the leaders getting better, uh, low prices because they're going to keep competing at least among each others, Um, and, uh, typically, although, uh, Maybe it was not always like that, but in recent years, it's almost always like that. This kind of evolution almost always comes together with a lot of investment in intangible assets. Okay, So when we say intangible assets in economics, we mean things that are not machines, plants, uh, and equipment. Okay, So this is IT, patents, um, property rights, intellectual capital in general. Okay? So most of the successful firms of the past 30 years... Have been successful because they've been really good at using intangible assets. Okay. So you see then this cluster of high productivity, low prices, lots of intangible investments, and it sometimes, you could even argue oftentimes come together with higher concentration. But you should not be worried too much about that. Okay, that's the good concentration. The bad concentration is when the, the increasing market share of the, the big firms is driven by the fact that they successfully manage to exclude competitors. Okay, so they raise barriers to entry. And these barriers typically could be regulatory, so they could uh, make sure that nobody gets a license. That's a sure way to not have competition. Uh, usually, to do that, you need to lobby. You need to lobby the regulator to make sure they don't give license to somebody who would compete with you. That is, so that's one type of barriers to entry. Um, the other extreme, if you don't like the new up-and-coming uh, competitor, just buy it. You know, just buy it, make an acquisition, and then be done with it, okay? So, and then everything in between, okay? Very aggressive sales tactic, aggressive um, behavior to, to, to just kill the, the entrance before they can enter. All of that happens. Uh, this would be buyers to entry, and then you would see high concentration, but you wouldn't see the good side of it. You wouldn't see the, high price, the, you wouldn't see the low price and the high productivity. In fact, typically, you would see higher prices and lower productivity growth. Okay. Um, now, if you think about the US today, it's pretty clear that sectors such as retail and wholesale trade fit very well the good concentration story. And then sectors like telecom, airlines, and healthcare fit very well the bad concentration story. Um, so the question is more, okay, on average for everything in the middle, is it more grayish to the black side or grayish to the white side? Is it you know more good or bad concentration? It's gonna be a mix of the two. The only interesting question is to tease out on average which one is more important. Once we understand that, we can talk about technology and policy as explanation for what's going on. Okay, so just to frame the debate, let's start with one example of good concentration. That's the expansion of Walmart since the 1980s. So uh, the market share of Walmart is uh, on the right axis from zero to 60%. It's not a typo, it's 60%. Um, That is, you know, one company has 60% of the market. The market here is the market for big box retailers, okay? and notice that that does not include online retailers, which is going to be important. Um, so this is the traditional supermarkets, okay, or hypermarkets. Um, now this is the expansion of Walmart. So I think I definitely I have never seen something like that. It's just amazing. You go from zero to 60% of the market. You have one million employees. But notice that uh, the profit margin of Walmart in green, if anything, you would argue, is slightly going down over this period. Well, it's definitely not going up, okay. What that means is that all the productivity gains that Walmart uh, successfully achieved um, in the uh, 1980s and 90s were passed on one for one as lower prices to consumers. Okay, that's why their profit margin was stable. Okay, so um, the way Walmart achieved this dominance was by doing a lot of IT investment. Okay, so just-in-time inventory management, a lot of in, of software, a lot of uh, high-tech. Tech, um, many uh, high-tech systems to manage their inventories and the inventories of their suppliers. That gave them a comparative advantage. They started to expand by cutting prices. Okay, So um, this is what we call good concentration. And just to be clear, good concentration, very competitive, cut capitalism, if you want. It doesn't mean it's not controversial. Typically, it is controversial. In fact, it should be. So you can argue about labor practices in Walmart. You can argue about the fact that maybe they put too many small stores out of business. And maybe that's bad for the communities. That's all perfectly fair. There's that an interesting debate to be had. But at some basic level, at the very least, we can say they innovate, they grow, and consumers get a good deal. Okay. So when I see that, I call that good concentration. Um, the other thing that's fascinating about that example is that what happens at the end start to plateau. And what's interesting is around 2005, so mid-2000, Walmart has this massive dominance position and people start to worry about it and say, well, maybe we need to do something. We need to curtail their growth. Uh, And we do. For instance, uh, we deny a banking license, which is crazy. Walmart should have got a banking license. The the reason they didn't get it is because the banks lobbied against it and because it was already too big and too scary. Okay? Um, But The great thing about capitalism is, in theory, the market should be solving that problem. Because if you think they become too big and too successful, then somebody is going to notice and start competing with them. And oftentimes, uh, we don't see it coming. Because it's coming from somewhere we didn't forecast. In that particular case, it did not come from within the industry. So the market share of Walmart, which was 60% of the supermarket, did not get attacked by another supermarket. It got attacked by, of course, Amazon, which was an online retailer. And today they are fiercely competing, these two. And I don't think there is an issue of high prices in that sector. Okay. You might have other issues, but definitely not high prices. So, um, that's the success story. To me, that looks like good concentration. And the question becomes, can you see that in the data today? Okay. So, um, in the book, I go through great lengths to look at all indicators one by one, but let me give you the big picture summary. So suppose you create two clusters of data when you look at industries. One cluster has Lots of intangible investment, strong productivity growth, and declining prices. The other cluster has uh, no entry of new firms, uh, no investment in IT, and uh, relatively slow productivity growth and uh, prices. Well, it turns out first that these two clusters actually describe the data pretty well. Or in other words, if you run a principal component analysis across industries, you're going to find that they load naturally on these two types of activities. Okay, So that's why I called one intangible and the other one barriers to entry. So the intangible cluster looks like the good concentration. And as you can see in, in our estimation, it's kind of flat. So we are not saying it's disappeared. We're not saying today there is no industry that goes through some kind of efficient concentration. But it's flat. Okay, um, But the, the other cluster, the one that looks more like bias to entry, has become relatively more important. Okay, so its score has increased over time. So the main gist of the argument of the book is that we have too much of the bad concentration and too little of the good one today compared to twenty years ago. Um, once we understand that, then the next questions are: first, why? Is it technology that's driving that somewhere, or can we trace it back to uh, differences in or changes in policy decisions? Okay, so technology versus policy. And once we understand that, we can ask the next question, which is why it did it happen the way it did? And if you want to really make progress on this question, I think you need some, some sort of control group. So you need another place where technology is the same and policy is different. And that's where Europe fits in the the, the big picture. Um, so for the next five slides, I'm going to um, assume a way, I'm going to, um, remove the high-tech firms from the the sample, okay? So I'm not looking at Google or Amazon or Facebook, simply because they do not have a European counterpart that I could compare with. And I'm gonna look at everything else, okay? And if you think about everything else, quickly you realize that we drive the same car, we have the same cell phone, we fly the same airplanes, we have the same airport, Uh, everything is the same, okay? We use precisely the same technology as the Americans. Why? Well, for the simple reason that technology flies across borders. And so that is a reason why we use the same technology, because we, we share it. Um, so therefore, if you see large differences, you know it's not going to be driven by technology. Um, now, do we see big differences? And the answer is yes. Because in Europe, um, starting in the mid-2000s, we have, sorry, mid-90s, uh, we have a wave of product market uh, deregulations. So, PMR is Product Market Regulations, and these are the reforms at the EU level. Uh, and this is just counting the number of reforms per country per year. So, one means there is one major reform per country per year on average for a period of about 10 to 15 years. Okay. The timing is not random, obviously. It happens after we start a single market, as I will explain. And uh, it's significant. That that's a lot of reforms if you add them up. Um, so let me give you one example of one of these uh, reforms that is going to make it more concrete. This is the telecom industry uh, in France. So France used to have three legacy carriers. Okay? So you, if you wanted to have a cell phone, you had to choose between three firms. And it was a classic oligopoly that did not compete on price. They had to find a way to stabilize uh, you know, the competition. So they were all offering the same product for the same price and had been doing so for a long time. Um, and there was a fourth uh, firm that would, wanted to enter this market. But to enter in this market, to become a wireless carrier, you need a license and you need a spectrum. And the three legacy carriers were lobbying very hard to deny the license to the new entrant. And then in 2011, they lost. And free, free mobile, uh, entered the, the French market. And they entered at half the price of the incumbent, okay? They didn't do like 5% or 10%. They did 50%, right? So the just to give you a sense, uh, so it's 2011. So this is before like fully unlimited data. So it's like unlimited texting plus like a bunch of megabytes of data for the typical smartphone contract. That Benchmark contract puts price at 40 euros per month by uh, Bouygues and SFR and France Telecom and free entered at 20 euros per month. So within six months, of course, they start getting market shares. The, the income realized realize that something is happening and they cut their own price. So that a year or two later, everybody's at 20 euros, which means not just the 5 or 10% of people who actually switched to free. Okay, because even free today, still has a market share of less than 20%. It did not become the dominant firm. Okay. It forced everybody else to lower their prices, which means my parents, who are not tech savvy and kept the same phone, are paying, and they have an amazing deal on their, on their cell phone. In fact, they have a combined deal with their broadband, so they pay a quarter of what I pay here for me and, and my family. Um, but they didn't have to do anything. They kept the same exact uh, provider as before. Competition came to them. Um, you can see it in this price series, uh, which is the price of communication in France. So this is data from the World Bank, from the, the ICP data, so international comparison of prices. That's the data we use when we make a uh, comparison of GDP per capita uh, on a PPP uh, basis around the world. Okay, so these are the underlying data to, to make the, the price adjustments. Uh, and it's a bit too aggregated. So communication includes much more than just wireless services. So a lot of other stuff was going on um, at the same time. But the thing is the chain was so big that you see it anyway. Uh, we were about ten to fifteen percent more expensive than the US, and we became twenty-five percent cheaper in two years. Okay, and today we are forty percent cheaper. So this is not a small industry, right? This is the entire communication service sector, and the relative price moved by forty percent. So this is something you notice, right? It's not like a little bit of a wiggle somewhere in a time series. It's a massive change. Um, if you look at uh, over time, all these regulations. Uh, you see a pattern like that, okay? So now we go back, we zoom out, we look at the entire EU. So every green dot is one country in the EU. The red line is the US. And this is the OECD PMR index. So what they do for, for this is they look at a bunch of indicators that measure restrictions to competition, like buyers to entry, licensing requirement, all kinds of restrictions to competition. And it has four dimensions and just add them up. So the worst score will be four, the best score would be zero. Four means that everything is, is uh, cartelized, and then zero means there is no restriction whatsoever. Um, as you can see, no country in Europe had a traditional free market. Everybody had more restriction than the US in the 1990s, okay? with one exception. And of course, I'm sure you can guess what this green dot is, because that's the country you live in. Okay? Obviously, the one exception is the one country in Europe that had a traditional free market was the UK. Uh, so the UK is here, but everybody else is above. Okay? And then from one vintage of data to the next, you don't see much change, okay? which is why people kept in the back of their mind the idea that, well, the US is the place where markets are competitive and Europe is the place, this backward place where markets are not competitive. And of course, it drifts slowly, but since it always drifts in the same direction, 20 years later, the drift has happened. So today, you would argue that all countries in Europe are about the same as the US. In fact, many of them are actually have lower barriers to entry. Um. You can see it in prices, uh, and one way to look at it is the price relative to unit labor cost. So that's another way of approximating uh, something like a markup. Um, And uh, this is the price minus unit labor cost in the U.S. in red versus uh, EU10. EU10 because I only have 10 countries big enough to have correct measures. Um, Essentially, there is no trend in Europe. Um, it's kind of flat. This decrease here is mostly the EU crisis. I think it's back up to something flat now. Uh, but in the US, there is a clear trend upward. Okay, And this is for, again for like the same industry. So this is industry by industry comparison and then you take the average of that. Okay, So it's not driven by changes in technology or industry composition or whatever. Um, so the difference is about 7, 10%. I think the EU has become more competitive over time and the US less. So my own, you know, back of the envelope estimate is that the US markups have increased over 20 years by something like seven points. Um, So to transfer that into numbers that everybody can understand, it means that the median household in the US is getting uh, taxed $300 per month by monopoly rents. They're paying $300 per month extra. They should get another $300 in their pocket at the end of each month if the market has remained competitive. If you aggregate that across all the households in the US in over 12 months, you get $600 billion. Okay, that's the impact on uh, consumer spending. There's $600 billion of consumer spending each year, which is pure rents to monopolies. Now, you can then ask a more interesting question, which is, suppose we could dial back the clock to go back to the 2000, when I got there, and markets were competitive. What would happen? Well. That's a totally standard macroeconomic simulation. So the answer is GDP would go up by one trillion. I should say private GDP. This is this is for the private sector, not of course the government. I don't know what the government would do. Um, so for the private sector, GDP would go up by about one trillion dollars, which is five percent, because private GDP is something like twenty trillion. Um, so there would be a, you would increase the pie by one trillion dollars, and on top of it, you would have some redistribution because if you lower prices, you lower profit margins. Um, now, of course, the business would sell more because GDP goes up by one trillion. So, sales, so revenues would also go up. Um, but since profit margins shrink, um, the profits actually also would decrease um, by about $250 billion. So, what that means is that labor income would go up by more than a trillion, in fact, by 1.25 trillion. Okay? So, if we could switch back to a competitive economy, American workers would get an extra $1.25 trillion in their pocket Every year. That is a lot of money. Okay. For the median household, it's about a 10% increase in uh, its uh, income, okay. real income. Because the median household gets most of its income from labor, you know, the, the, their capital income is relatively small. So the decrease in capital income by 250 billion doesn't hit them very hard, but the increase in labor income helps them a lot. So, typically for the median household which earns something like $50,000 per year, that's a bit, that would be like an extra $5,000 per year, okay, 10%. So, that's a very significant improvement in the standards of living. Okay, so then if it's so good, if competition is so great, what happened? Why is it that it disappeared? Or oh, disappeared is too strong. Why is it that it decreased? Um, and what can be done? So there, I want to be completely honest with you. I think I have a complete story for what happened in Europe. I think I'm pretty confident that uh, I know what happened in Europe. I don't have the same level of confidence in what happened in the US. Um, it's It's more complicated. So let me tell you the European story, and then we can brainstorm about the American one. The European story is the kind of thing that we like as economists, because it sounds like a paradox, but when you write down the model, the equation comes out perfectly. So the the paradox is that is the following. As we saw earlier, there is no country in Europe that has a tradition of free market, except for the UK. So you put 20 countries like that, like Italy, France, Germany, around the table, and none of them has a tradition of free market. None of them has a tradition of uh, of strong and independent regulators maximizing consumer welfare. That's not their tradition. And you put 20 of them around the table... And voila, instead of doing the same thing, they do something completely different. At the EU level, they build up an architecture which is super pro-competition, completely focused on consumer welfare with the most independent regulators in the world. How is that possible? Why did they decide together to do the opposite of what they were doing at home for like a century? So that's the paradox. But of course, what's great is if you actually write the game, that's the new national equilibrium. It's because the same politicians that, like to have industrial policy and their national champions at home, understand that if they play that game at the EU level, everybody will be trying to influence the regulators, and sometimes you're going to lose. Sometimes the other countries are going to capture the regulator and do something which is not good for you. So then, if you understand that game, you realize that your best strategy is to commit to have a fully independent regulator. You lose the chance to influence the regulator, but you gain security that nobody else is going to use the regulator against you. Okay? This is why we have such strong and independent institutions at the EU level, even though this was not the tradition at the national level. Um, and the timing is also very clear. It should happen exactly after we decide to have a single market. If we don't have a single market, none of that matters. If we have a single market with free trade, completely free trade and free mobility inside the, the EU, then we need that. Okay? I think that explains Europe. The rest is just then slowly, once you set up the institutions, they have an influence and you can keep track of that influence slowly over time. That does not explain what happened in the US, because in the US there is not a change like that. You don't have like a single market. They they had a single market before and they still have it today. Uh, There is no obvious change in the data. All I can point out in the US is some proximate causes that are themselves endogenous and I don't exactly know what changed uh, precisely. Um, What I do know for sure is you cannot think of what's going on in the U.S. without thinking about lobbying. That I know for sure. But why lobbying started to increase, that I do not know. Okay, so this is lobbying expenditures in the U.S. and the EU. The green line here is the total lobbying expenditures in the U.S. and uh, the red is lobbying by businesses. The difference between the red and the, and, uh, the green That would be lobbying by NGOs, consumer advocacy groups, and stuff like that, non-businesses. As you can see, the vast majority of lobbying is done by businesses, and all of the increase is by businesses. So to a first order, you can think of it as just corporate lobbying. And it's increased a lot. It's multiplied by three. In fact, I think more than that because the data in the recent years is crap because they stopped enforcing punishment for companies that don't report correctly. So I don't think this flattened at all. I think it kept going up, but we just don't measure it very well. So clearly a massive increase in corporate lobbying. Uh, The same happened in campaign finance contribution. If you look at the EU, we don't have, unfortunately, the same quality of data. So we cannot go back in the past as much. I can only look at the recent years. But to give you, I think the orders are made to sort of make sense, which is the EU today in terms of its lobbying look just like the US 20 years ago. So it's not zero, but it's not overwhelming. also in Europe, interestingly, the share of lobbying, which is done by non-businesses, is much higher than in the US. It's actually almost the, of the same order of magnitude as, uh, business lobbying. And conditional on bringing a case, the lobbyists are actually less likely to win in Brussels than they are in Washington. All that speaks to the influence uh, of uh, lobbyists in the, the US and the relative independence in, in Europe, which is not perfect, of course, but it's definitely better than either in the U.S. or better than it was at the country level. So I think this is uh, the big picture of what happened in Europe and in the U.S. And uh, I'd rather stop here to have more time for discussion uh, later. Thank you so much for your attention.
0: Thank you very much, uh, uh, Thomas. That was very clear, uh, very thought-provoking, and I'm sure we will have... Uh, more questions uh, to our audience please keep the questions coming and let me now hand it over uh, to uh, angelo martelli angelo floor is yours
2: thank you very much um thank you very much spirozka for your kind introduction and uh, to Professor Philippon for uh, giving me the chance actually to discuss his um, superb and actually honest account of uh, um, what has happened in market concentration and market power um, across the two sides of the Atlantic in the last uh, two decades. So I prepared um, a set of slides. Um, I'll try to keep within the 10 minute time. That Start with in. my hero.
1: You have my hero uh, on the first slide.
2: Yeah, and uh, what you will notice actually in this presentation is that I have replaced all the uh, very good and solid evidence of the graphs with a lot of photos. So that's one big change. So um, and so, what I will focus on in my presentation in particular will be I'll try to uh, give a bit of a different perspective on, uh, on the book and uh, more context of why I think actually did... Um, and the account that uh, Professor Philippon does is actually the heart of capitalism and democracy. Um, and then give a bit of, uh, um, of more of an update of what is going on. So I will focus on the second part of the title for today's uh, event in the time of uh, of COVID, with especially a European uh, focus. So um, as uh, we have heard until now, I think you know it. Is kind of in the, there is indisputable evidence uh, of a greater degree of market concentration uh, in the US. Uh, fewer retailers, fewer cable companies, fewer airlines, therefore, uh, in the end, fewer choices for uh, consumers. And where there is a bit more uh, debate, it's on whether this has translated, of course, into uh, market power um, and whether these therefore, is uh, in a way that to do with also greater global competition, what I think uh, we have seen also in the in the presentation beforehand is that there is uh, a lot of evidence of higher markups on prices charged to consumers as well so uh, why has concentration increased uh, there have been uh, the different hypotheses uh, out there um, the, Part of it can be efficiency, but of course there are a lot of uh, artificial barriers uh, for instance they um, it may have to do with i p laws, uh, local regulations to start businesses, occupational licensing uh, rules, um, some monopsony power um, and um, I think uh, what in the, the, what we actually see is evidence of this great reversal uh, at, the, at its best. This is actually based on, uh, um, uh, on the paper by uh, Gutierrez and Philippon 2018. And uh, it is clear that you actually see in this uh, gray line, for instance, is the EU at the country level and, or the EU taken as, a, um, as an aggregate therefore, as a weighted average of the industries and the treating the US as a single market, you actually see uh, clear evidence that this great reversal has actually happened. This is based just on the Erfindahl-Irschman Index, which is basically um, an index measuring market concentration by looking at uh, market shares of all suppliers uh, in the market. Now, um, um, in the book, you what you will see is that... Uh, um, I think it, it is a superb account because, first of all, uh, um, Professor Philippon uh, told, tells us, look, uh, take everything with a huge grain of salt uh, because these, this is the job of what, what economists should actually do. So it should present very solid evidence and then it is for others, policymakers and politicians to take you know, the, the final uh, decision. And what, what he does is that he sets out a number of different hypotheses and then tries to test them. Uh, Among them, uh, they were already mentioned, for instance, there is the rise of superstar firms, there is the hypothesis of globalization or the hypothesis of intangible assets. One that probably, and that's where I would like also uh, to hear Professor Philippon's view, which does not really come from economics per se, but comes a bit more from uh, geopolitics, international relations, is also the idea that um it is in a way wanted by you know by the top by the u.s government to keep a high concentration in those firms to keep a lot of these national champion, champions champions for, for a sort of a, a power dominance soft power uh, to some extent uh in a way when you talk to um to businessmen across the two sides of the Atlantic, it seems always the American businessman looks at the, at the world as the market in a way. When instead, if you talk to um, uh, an Italian or a Spanish or a French businessman to some extent, I hope I will not hurt anyone's, uh, um, anyone by saying this, but the market and the catchment area is always a, a bit smaller. So, um, if you then move, and there is the very nice slide of uh, uh, that we saw before about the missing uh, trillion dollar. Um, I think that this book is is extremely um, a solid account also because, you know, it tries to combine two views. One that comes more from competition economics and another one from public economics. Now, uh, the competition economics industry looks at uh, um, you know whether there are uh, any competition concerns to be uh, to be looked into by adopting what is called the theory of arm and the theory of arms should be usually logically consistent, reflect the incentives that various parties face, and be in line with the available empirical evidence and articulate how consumers have been or will be uh, will be armed this in a way I think Um, can be combined with also the view from public economics, which is, you know, you try to look at society with a welfare function. Um, And uh, in in one other talk, I remember Professor Philippon basically saying, this is a slide that Republicans like, this is a slide that usually Democrats like, meaning, uh, is it, you know, Uh, uh, Are we being business friendly or are we being consumer friendly? Um, And in a way, it it is a decision by each government or by an economic area to, uh, you know, strike the right balance between the two. And I think uh, there is a lot of evidence in the book which... basically hints uh, at this balance being dearly needed and looking at two sides of the of the coin. Now um, I think one clear winner from the book and um, from this account is for sure uh, the single market uh, and the independence of European authorities that uh, as you probably a lot of you uh, know in the, in the audience, this is coming a bit under threat uh, in the last days with the decision of uh, a top um, a federal court in, uh, in Germany. Uh, of course, it doesn't have to do with the, um, with the single market per se, but it might have repercussions moving forward on the, uh, the institutional um, equilibrium that we see we will see onwards. So as um, uh, the Great Reversal uh, tries to show, uh, we we can clearly see, um pushing competitiveness since the um, the single market was established, in particular since 1993. And uh, um, um, it is interesting to look at uh, you know the DG competition and the uh, uh, market uh in uh, um, currently. The, the commissioner uh, for that DG actually being at the at the heart of the decision making and the heart of a national equilibrium, as uh, Professor Filipon uh, clearly explains, something that uh, a lot of uh, domestic you know audiences um, some. A lot of governments didn't want to do for with their domestic audiences, therefore take very tough decisions about breakups of monopolies. We have managed actually to do at the, at the European level, and uh, this has been only possible because DG competition has had a lot of uh, um a lot of independence in the past uh two decades and um there I- there has been a lot of uh willingness from the top to actually you know uh, not favor any country in uh, in particular in these um uh, in these last two decades now this brings me to what is happening nowadays um uh many of you and uh, i'm here Showing uh, excerpts from the interview that a fellow, uh, can, the fellow countrymen of uh, Thomas Philippot and Macron uh, has actually given to Financial Times in mid April. Um, and it's interesting because it, in a way, goes back to what I was mentioning before about the social welfare function that we would like to adopt. And also, it has a lot to do with the with the competition economics that uh, we will be facing uh, um, in, in the next years. So first of all, of course, Macron describes um, the EU as a political project. Uh, the human factor is a priority and there are notions of solidarities that come into play. The economy follows on from that. And let's not forget that economics is a moral science. Here he wanted in a way to bring in the um, um, the Germans on board with their concept of philosophy also has more of philosophy. Um, economics is a more of philosophy. Um, and then he's, he he goes on to say, you cannot have a single market where some are sacrificed. Yeah. It, it is no longer possible to have a financing that is non-mutualized for the spending. We are undertaking the battle against COVID-19 and that we will have for the economic recovery. But lastly, he he says, and I think like very few observers have actually highlighted this. He says, we are going to nationalize the wages and the financial accounts of almost all our businesses, Mr. Macron said. That's what we are doing. All our economies, including the most economically liberal, are doing that. It's against all the dogmas, but that's the way it is. And um, I think this is extremely interesting evidence to also open up then a bit the discussion of what is happening in Europe uh, nowadays. Fortunately, um, you know, DG competition is um, uh, supervising this whole process of uh, state aid um, in and uh, uh, the responses that have been taken at country level. I know this looks like a lot and these are the 105 national measures that were actually adopted under this temporary framework put forward by uh, the European Commission. Now um most of these measures uh, w- what we can see are in um in terms of loans and state guarantees uh since this week actually there has been an amendment to this framework which looks to actually um allow some measures of cap- recapitalization and subordinated debt measures and this is where we have to be um a bit careful because then it's when the framework is not going to be that temporary anymore um and we have to be careful of you know of if there is a good exit strategy in place by the governments otherwise we are in front of a looming wave of new uh nationalization and uh, uh let me give this example uh, of I can't provide, you know, solid evidence of what is happening nowadays. So this is very speculative and based on my uh, humble observation of what we have seen in the past weeks. Um, First of all, um, based on what uh, has happened at the, the EU level, um, of course, we have retrenched a bit into our national domestic uh, arenas and uh, um, in the, for instance, in the airline industry, we have seen, for instance, uh, France backing up uh, air France, um, the Germany, Lufthansa, Italia, Italy, and so on. Uh, and this has, of course, created uh, major problems uh, for uh, other carriers that don't have so much a state backing, uh, um, a strong state backing. And uh, therefore Ryanair has recently been filing uh, a massive amount of complaints um, in, because it is saying, you know, I was uh, an efficient player in the market and uh, all these, um, these measures are actually going in the opposite direction. So um, let's actually try to keep a level playing field here. This is one that you know we should raise a bit eyebrows of because it is happening also in other industries. The second point is about supply chains um, um, all of you are probably aware of the breaks in supply chains that have happened on medical supply, so I wanted to provide some kind of different evidence and uh, um, I also live in London uh, uh, and the supermarkets here at least in the first phase, so a shortage of uh, eggs in particular among other other items such as toilet papers and so on but eggs i think is is the interesting example because i discovered actually that uh, um, the carton board that uh, uh, where you hold the eggs uh, only have three uh suppliers in uh, uh in Europe and actually one of them the danish the danish one was shut off and this created actually the shortage that uh, we see there um and this um uh, hint signal of uh industry concentration in the food industry is actually being something that is being reported in, especially in the last week also uh, in the US in the case of meat for instance, so one has to be uh, a bit careful because bottlenecks ha- have been appearing in very strange places, uh, creating a sort of domino-like effect across whole supply chains, um, and uh, you know it, it says a lot about the type of vertical integration that we'll be seeing in the uh, in the years to come. The second structural break um, and the fragilities uh, is actually something that. Uh, um, That in its absurdity hints at the fact that uh, uh, free markets are live and kicking. Uh, so the Italian government, what it tried to do, it tried to, uh, cap the price of face masks, uh, at, uh, 50%. Uh, and this totally, uh, backfired, uh, because of the suppliers unwillingness and also the vendors, uh, unwillingness, uh, and it should teach us a lot of, you know, of trying to, you know, going back to what I was saying before, of the right balance in the consumer surplus and also being at the same time business friendly, uh, one has to be extremely careful of the type of government intervention that we would like to see. Then um, just the couple of last two slides, and I'm finishing here, um, is Uh, what has happened actually uh, with uh, Deliveroo. Uh, So we actually thought that, you know, food delivery would go go massively up. This has not actually been the case. Uh, Why? Because a lot of the food and restaurant industry in London has been shut down. Also the big chains such as Nando's, McDonald's, and so on. And Deliveroo faced uh, bankruptcy. And uh, what the Competition Market Authority did was a bit of a reversal uh in the in the on the take on this because it was before blocking for instance amazon amazon from uh, having an investment in deliveroo and they now changed its position by actually saying that to protect customers and uh uh, to prevent higher prices they will allow these uh this acquisition this investment to go on so one uh, last point has to do with uh, liquidity um one we have to be careful because uh if you talk to investment bankers they say cash has never been so cheap and a lot of big big tech and also pharma companies have a lot of liquidities and uh, these can potentially bring to a lot more concentration in the future and uh, so to finish on this how should our um, how will our post-pandemic future look like? Uh, it's a bit of a big question mark. However, one can uh, see that regulators' pr- priorities um, are definitely changing. This is the case in U and the UK. Uh, we have to be careful of you know type of vertical integration that we will be seeing. Uh, big tech will certainly come under uh, intense scrutiny because of the da- data privacy issues and taxes and finally, we have to be also, if you look at it from the labour market uh, standpoint, one has to um, also think about you know, the increasing precariness and deregulation on that front. So, thank you very much and I uh, yield the floor back to Perotka.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Angelo. Uh, um, I want to ask uh, Professor Philippon if he has uh, any urgency to address any of the points that uh, Angelo uh, has raised. If not, then maybe we should turn to um, to the questions and answers. So the questions are, are pouring in, and uh, and I'm mindful of the time that we we have left.
1: I think I think it's more fun for everybody if uh, we go. For
0: okay. The questions. Very good. Very
1: much. And I just let me just so, uh, thank you, yes. Angelo, for for your uh, great discussion, and I'm sure we'll come back to some of the points uh, in the Q and A. Perfect.
0: Great, very good. So let's turn to the uh, to the questions, uh, very nicely flowing in, um, uh, very pertinent. Many um, relate uh, to the question of uh, of the impact of, uh, of 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 COVID and, and the rising uh, nationalism. Um, uh, William Claxton Smith asks whether uh, with with the ongoing global pressures for national efficiency, more national efficiency, particularly under the COVID crisis, will, uh, will we see an acceleration of trends in the, um, in the uh, US and the reverse of the good ones in Europe, in your view? So how does the COVID and this um, urgency uh, and uh, the, the, uh, the, the perception of, 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 of more national efficiency, that, uh, the pressure for that affects uh, the trends that you described? And maybe I can add one more, and that is um one more kind of impact uh, what's the impact of brexit is any uh, when we are sitting most of us in 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 london and and given that you mentioned that the u k was the only uh, true uh, free market before the whole um, um uh, you know um, um, product market uh, Uh, Reforms uh, got underway in the EU and has been indeed was, sadly, in past tense, was a major um, uh, engine of of uh, of uh, uh, competition uh, competition policy, um, and now has left. What that uh, would mean for the trends that you described in Europe?
1: You want me to do exit uh, Brexit first, perhaps, or (laughs) two different questions. Yes. Well, so uh, so Brexit um, was, uh, of course, a major shock. Um, and in the context of the EU, I think um, it's, it's in the bigger picture of whether we think of, um, you know, Europe as being temporarily more consumer friendly or whether uh, Europe has had a structural break that is not going to reverse itself. So, um it's a discussion I've had many times with um, Luigi Zingales, for instance, who says, "Well, maybe what's happening is we just did it ten years after the Americans. So right now we still have, you know, uh, relatively competitive markets, but quickly enough these oligopolies are going to find a way to bring back their rents, uh, and we're just going to converge back to where we are. And the alternative is that no, we we did something different; it's going to stay different. I'm more in the second camp because I think it's uh, the right interpretation of the EU is. Once you enshrine something in the institutions, it's very hard to change. And I think the DNA of the single market is that it is pro-consumers. Um, and that is in part thanks to the UK. Because at the time where, of course, the institutions were designed, the UK was very much a member and a very influential one at that. And so the UK has given Europe some of its best ideas in terms of you know, free markets. And I don't think they're going to go away because they are now enshrined in the EU institutions. Uh, Short of a treaty change, which nobody wants and nobody can achieve anyway, I don't think that's going to change. Um, So I am relatively optimistic in in that sense. Um, I am worried about one big factor, which is China. And uh, I'll come back to that when we talk about uh, the COVID part. Um, But I... I think otherwise, we, you can make the case that uh, EU students are here to stay like that. I think the same is true for the ECB. Um, now, COVID uh, is going to, of course, that has many impacts. Um, I think it's useful to think about, the first thing it's going to do is going to kill a bunch of small firms. Okay? The small firms are going to die at, at a faster rate than the, um, the big firms because the small firms have lower liquidity on hand when at the beginning usually, they have less uh, ability to access liquidity during the crisis because they can only rely on banks while the big firms can rely on, on financial markets. They can tap commercial paper or bond markets. Uh, and in this market, say the commercial paper or the bond market, the central bank can intervene directly very efficiently. So, um, well, again, the smaller firms it rely on the banks. So that gives another advantage to the big ones. And finally, the big ones are very good at getting bailouts. Okay, and we saw that with Lufthansa and Air Force. Okay. Um, so that is clearly something that's going to be bad for small firms and good for the big ones, relatively speaking. Um, and EasyJet and Ryanair do have a case uh, to complain about. Uh, and I'm not too worried about them, to be honest, because their, their margins were significantly higher. They're just so much more efficient than the big uh, legacy carriers that I don't think they're going to die. You know, I think they are fine. Um, but in the grand scheme, I think they are right to complain. Um, so the first thing is going to be that, that's reshuffling, uh, because the smaller firms are more vulnerable to the crisis. Then the second thing is going to be, uh, the impact of doing everything online, obviously, like this. Okay. And this is going to be a double-edged sword. So the first obvious one is that there are two companies that are the big winners. Okay. It's uh, Microsoft and Amazon. They're the other one booming. Uh, in part, so Amazon is because of the delivery system and also because of the uh, the cloud and then same thing with Microsoft. Okay? To a lesser extent, Google and to a lesser extent, uh, Apple and, and Facebook. Um, so to some extent, then you can say, well, it looks like it's just going to reinforce the fact that these guys were already dominant firms. Um, that is certainly true. On the other hand, we are using Zoom for this meeting. We are not using anything else. And there is a reason because Zoom is better. Um, and Zoom and Slack are going to be two very serious new competitors for the tech giants, okay? So if you thought that one of the barrier to entry in these markets was the ability to create a very big network very quickly, okay? Then the COVID crisis has solved that problem for Zoom and Slack. Their network is just as big as that of Facebook. Um, so maybe, you know, they are going to have new competitors. So th- could, there could be a silver lining here. Um, the last trend is, I think, the more worrisome, which is the nationalism. And that's very much linked to China. I don't think it's got, I think it has a little bit to do with COVID, but I think in the big picture of things, it's, it's going to be China. Um, uh, and uh, definitely in the US, it's very clear. In Europe, also to a large extent, I think it's true. Um, yeah, China being such a huge player uh, and is a real issue for many reasons. It's unfortunately also something that is used as an excuse for lobbies to justify bad policies. Okay. And the push for national champions that you hear in the US today almost always uses China as a scarecrow, you know, saying, look, if you don't let us merge and be dominant at home, uh, then we won't be able to fight back against the Chinese giants. And I think it's important to, I think economists have a role to play there because we should be there reminding people that this is, 95% of the time, this is utter bullshit. Okay, this is not true. Uh, There's absolutely zero evidence that firms that you allow to merge at home become stronger competitors globally. In fact, usually it's the other way. The the best way to have strong firms that can compete globally is to have a very competitive market at home because then they get to train very hard at home and they are ready fit and efficient when they go abroad, okay? Now, there might be some exceptions, but by and large, I think that argument is bogus, but it's still used by the lobbyists. So, I think the prime duty of uh, economists then is to call their bluff.
0: Thank you very much. Um, uh, Next question um, is from uh, Jeffrey Thomas. He's asking, um, but uh, are we not all complicit in this great reversal? To the extent that we are in an aging society in which the state has withdrawn for public pension provision, uh, households necessarily um, engage in private uh, pensions for income, and a large portion of private pensions is, of course, coming from dividends, uh, distributed monopoly profits, uh, if you wish. Uh, so we are all right here now. Are we? Are we complicit? Is it? Is it fair or not? And I have to say, a lot think, of lot of people like this question. We got a lot of hands up on this question.
1: I think it's a great question, mm-hmm. um, and um, it's one of these uh, where I wish I had a way of. I think it's a very good point. I wish I had a good way of testing it, uh, but I can tell you that it's definitely possible. So if you think about first. So let's start with, a. let's do it in two steps. Imagine a world where everybody has the same mix of income, a mix of labor income and capital income. Okay, In that world, everybody would agree that competition is good because essentially what they earn is GDP. And so they would agree that the first order of business would be increase the share of the pie, the size of the pie for everybody. The sharing of it doesn't matter so much. And everybody would be voting for policies that increase competition. Now, imagine a world in which some people get much, and let's make it simple, imagine some people get all of their income from capital income. And some people get all of their income from labor income. Well, then it becomes ambiguous. And in fact, you saw in my simulations that in the when I simulate the US economy, under the competition that prevailed 20 years ago, total capital income goes down, actually. So if I'm a retired person earning capital income, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't vote for that. Uh, And of course, older people vote more than younger people. That's even more true in the US, where very few people vote. And so it is very possible that the people who vote the most don't really have an incentive to uh, vote for high competition Mm -hmm. because the dividend payment that they get more than compensate the high prices that they pay. you know, It's a race, uh, like you get a big fat dividend from AT&T and, and you get ripped off when you have a cell phone. The question is, you know, how do you compare <laughs> this two? Well, if you're retired and maybe you don't need like a super fancy cell phone and you have a lot of stocks or dividend, then maybe you prefer AT&T to be a fat monopolist. Uh, and if you vote, then you're gonna vote for that. Yes, that's a very good possibility.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you very much. Let's uh, move on. Um, um, A question from Duncan Clark. Um, He's asking about big tech. Uh, You just cursorily mentioned, and um, let me me note also you haven't spoken deliberately about the financial sector, even even though you are a great expert on many of the issues there. so, um, Duncan asks, uh, COVID really has meant that we, we are now increasingly dependent on, on, on big tech. Um, does it mean that their power will increase? Does it mean that uh, regulatory capture is unavoidable?
1: Um, well, unavoidable, hopefully not. Uh and whether their power is going to increase or not, I, think it, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. I don't think we should be too pessimistic. I think we, mm-hmm. uh, we, they, the game is not over. Um, and um, so I think let's, take, think, let's just go step by step. So uh, first of all, I think the big tech firms are all very different. Okay? Um, mm-hmm. There is a very different analysis of Google and Amazon, for instance. Uh, if you look at Amazon, um, they do have a lot of power. I think they do have too much power. On the other hand, you have to admit that they are so amazingly efficient that there is a reason why they are dominant. The way they could rearrange their supply chain, the way they could prioritize essential items so that people would still get the thing they really need by slowing down everything else, um, it's amazingly impressive. I mean, also, as far as I know, I might be wrong, but as far as I know, I don't think there is any... Uh, evidence that any of the big store that Amazon runs in the US that has a cluster that's become a cluster of the COVID, at least I'm, I've never seen that anywhere in the news. Um, which means that they managed to do that without putting their employees at risk, uh, hence wise mm-hmm. So you know you gotta give them credit for that. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why we use Amazon. It's because it just works. It just when everything else is so inefficient. Um So I think that's, you know, now they do have too much power. So we need to find a solution for that. And that's going to involve a mixture of regulations and stuff like that. I also hope that perhaps some of the medium sized businesses are going to realize that home delivery is not that complicated and they could do it as well, but they need to team up. Okay. I've seen mm-hmm. that, that happening in France a lot where, uh, you know, we love markets, open open air markets in France, and of course they were closed. Um, so the people who used to who go there, independent usually, like, you know, single-person single, uh, single person businesses, uh, they started to team up to do home deliveries together. Well, do they could have thought about that 10 years ago, to be honest. But at least, you know, if they put that infrastructure in place, then they would be in a better place to compete. Um, so I think that's that's clear. Now, the, the part which is more worrisome is the part about privacy, Uh, because it's clear that in the post-COVID world, we're going to have to give up some of the online privacy, and that might be exploited by uh, other networks. So I think that's the part where I would be perhaps a little bit more uh, pessimistic.
0: Excellent. Angelo, I want to call on you. Uh, Would you like to add uh, uh, to some of these questions?
2: Um, Yeah, uh, just on the last mm -hmm. one, I think on Mm -hmm. Big Tech. I think a lot will depend on uh, how these are financed. Um, meaning, as um, it is pretty clear, for instance, I, I give the example of the UK market for food delivery. Uh, there were, and there are, mainly three players. Deliveroo, Just Eat, and Uber Eats. Uh, and Deliveroo has, been, has seen its margins being completely squeezed, also by some of the dynamics that uh, uh, Thomas was talking about. Uh, especially because you don't make much margins on, uh, uh, on on food delivery, and also because it is costly to employ personnel. Al- although the conditions are a bit questionable there, but uh, um, you could you could see definitely that Uber, because of the uh, backing of SoftBank, and also just it being in a di- different scenario, would there the financing of it all matters, and that's why I had that slide on uh, uh, you know cash flows and liquidity. Uh, 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 or even of these big companies because the capital structure will matter a lot whether they you know whether the liquidity problem will will translate into a, a solvency uh solvency issue the other problem i think uh it's also you know uh, and we are having major issues in uh, uh, in the eu but i think in the world as a well whole with the, how do we tax Uh, these uh, how do we tax big tech and uh, unless we actually agree on you know some global competition uh, standards also on on taxation then we will This will be one of the major issues moving forward because it's also linked to the to the financing part i think
0: excellent thank you angelo um the questions keep uh, coming in um uh let me ask one uh which um asks the question of the role of um, of quantitative easing monetary policy. Alison Payne is asking um, whether the um, very low interest rates that we have been seeing and which are expected to continue have contributed to the possibility of higher profit margins and thus higher concentration.
1: Yeah, in theory it's possible. Uh, mm-hmm. In theory it's possible. I, I'm. I. It's hard for me to imagine that this is uh, quantitatively uh, very, very large. But it's in theory it's possible. I think one way to think about it is, um, you know, bank versus non-bank. If you um, if you can tap the bond market directly without going through a bank, then very low interest rates and QE really help you out. Okay. Um, So I think that gives a boost to, to, because if you go to the banking system, they still need to pay the intermediation margin of the banks. You can't quiz that, they have to make a living as well. And so even if they lower the borrowing cost, they will never lower it as much as you could get by tapping directly the, the bond market. So when rates are very low, it is true that relatively speaking, it helps more the firms that can tap the bond market. And that gives them an incentive to uh, issue more debt. Now, whether they use it to invest and take away the market share of the smaller ones or to pay dividends. That's another question. Uh, But in theory, it's possible. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. Excellent. Um, There are quite a lot of questions about how to reverse this reversal, this uh, great reversal. Um, how to uh, achieve in the US uh, um, um, a reversal uh, to a situation where competition is, is, is larger when you reduce the market dominance, the bad concentration, uh, as you put it, uh, Professor Philippon. Um, can you give us a view of how you see this uh, displaying out? What would work really in the US? Would it be Washington who would start these reforms? Would it be somewhere else? Is it is it new business? Uh,
1: what is your view? Well, I think at this point, Washington is so dysfunctional that there is nothing to expect from Washington. Uh, you could hope that they don't screw it up, but that, that's the best you can hope for. Um, at the state level, you can be a bit more optimistic. Um, I think that if you step back and you think about the big picture, um, I would say that um, I would put the political economy front and center there. If you don't have some change in the political economy uh, of the US, it's going to be hard to do anything that's sustainable. Um, the first thing is you need to bring back some bipartisan support for these policies. Because big changes in, in competition or even antitrust cases, they take years. So if the next administration only goal is to undo what the previous one was doing, this mm-hmm. is never going to go anywhere. So. It's not the case that the Democrats and the Republicans would ever agree on everything, but they should agree on at least a few big principles for, for free market and consumer welfare that they can then enforce. Uh, if you don't do that, then the lobbyists have a field day because all they need to do is, is for their party to be in power and then they do whatever they want. So I think some some form of um, bipartisan support for uh, competitive, pro-competition policies, I think that would be step one. And this is the tradition in the U.S. I mean, there was a consensus for a long time, so I think I'll bring that back. Um, you also need to find a way to limit uh, corporate contributions to campaign finance. Uh, it failed, of course, uh, 10 years or 15 years ago, um, but that, that's the best thing you could hope for in Washington, with some way of limiting um, campaign contributions. That has to go through the Supreme Court, So that's complicated, but, uh, you know, that's kind of one thing. At the state level, things are much more open. At the state level, Mm -hmm. there is plenty of young uh, Republican governors who are open to the idea that, uh, you know, there's an issue with competition. In fact, many of them have started removing some licensing requirements at the state level that that made no sense. Uh, And they are open to the idea that we need competition. They're also very open to the idea of going after the big tech uh, because the big tech are not that popular in many states. So um, I think there's more hope there. So my my own view was that if I had to spend political capital, I would do it at the state level first, try to get the state AGs and the governors to, to team up, uh, because Washington is so dysfunctional. Uh, at least until November, I think there's absolutely nothing to expect from Washington.
0: Thank you. Um, turning again to uh, to the European angle, uh, we have a question from Vicky Price. Um, as a result of the crisis, there is an increasing call for European champions in the economy and for onshoring or production um, um and and so on. Should we worry
1: well yes and no I think uh yes, because the national champions uh, nonsense is something that Europeans love to do in the past, and they you know they could fall back on their bad habits of the past, so that's always possible. Um, but on the other hand, um, I think that we have much better, much stronger um, you know, protections now, thanks to the single market. Um, now, as uh, Angelo was saying, of course, some of them are temporarily suspended mm-hmm. and therefore are going to be abused, but it's going to be temporary. So I am not too, too worried. Yes, we're going to bail out the stupid airlines who should have restructured a long time ago. Sorry about that, okay. I don't think that's the end <laughs> of the world. Uh, I would not have done it that way. Um, I think uh, you could, you should have, we should have made some kind of bridge loans for these banks, so sorry, for these companies because, of course, we don't want them to go bankrupt just right now because the, the courts are not even open. So clearly, that's not the time. You give them a six-month bridge loan and then you put them to chapter bankruptcy uh, in the fall and then you clean up their stupid creditors and, and their assets and then you reopen. Actually, you don't reopen. You keep, you keep running the airlines. I think that would have been better Okay, we didn't do that. Um, uh, I think the onshoring discussion is very different. I am in favor of onshoring many of the things we... Mm-hmm. That's absolutely... But that's not competition, that's trade policy. And uh, and they, they are different. Like, you can very much... I think we are relying too much... I mean, we saw it, obviously, in the case of uh, health equipment, medical equipment. But there are many other industries you can make the case that we shouldn't be too, too dependent. At least we need to have the option to do some stuff... Uh, uh, on the European soil, So that is more issue of trade policy. So to me, the thing that I absolutely want to protect is the single market. The EU is big enough that if we free trade among ourselves, we're going to be just fine. Okay? What I absolutely want to avoid is to break the single market. Whether in the next 10 years we start putting barriers outside the EU, why not? I mean, we shouldn't be just like, you know, naive players where the Chinese and the Americans do what they want. And no, that's not that. We can play that game too. So I don't think that the EU uh, should uh, necessarily be like a naive uh, pro-free trade with the rest of the world, given that the rest of the world is not playing with the same rules. But within the EU, I still absolutely want to protect the single market. So I think the danger is if we start touching that. Trade policy. I think we could be a bit tougher. I still believe free trade is better, and I think we should still work with the WTO. But if nobody else wants to do it, I think we should be ready to put, uh, you know, to, def- to have some other more aggressive policy on the trade side.
0: Thank you. Um, next question. Um, there is actually a bouquet of questions about uh, the. Um, uh, the impact of the increasing role of the state, more state intervention as a result of the, the COVID crisis. Um, and uh, um, we have a question from Irene uh, from uh, Greece. Um, um, in that regard, do you expect that the state's will be more interfering and what does it mean for, for competition? We have a question for Matt. Um, um, not exactly, but related to... Um, how should the EU respond to competition from Chinese state-owned enterprises? What is your view? And I, maybe we can put it a little bit more generally. We may see much more state-owned enterprises as a result of COVID. How do you see this playing out in terms of um, competition uh, the, and,
1: and the market concentration? So uh, are we going to see much more um, state-owned enterprises Maybe a little bit. I don't think it's going to be as much. I think most of them are going to give, be like a debt program, subsidized or debt guarantees mm-hmm. or either direct lending mm-hmm. by the mm-hmm. state, which doesn't change the ownership structure. Um, so I don't think we necessarily are going to have... My main worry about COVID, to be honest, is not that. My main worry about really is we're going to kill too many small and medium businesses. That's by far that's to the priority should be make sure that the small and medium-sized businesses can survive and reopen. I think that's priority number one. If that means more support from the state, so be it. I don't think it's a big deal. It's temporary. It's fine. Um, If we have to bail out a few big firms because we are worried about the knockdown effect or like some externality, that's also, I think I can live with that as well. Um, So actually, I'm not that worried about it. I think that um, the single market is going to come back. Um, I'm more worried about the political economy of of COVID if if the Europeans don't show that they can work together properly. Um, So that I think, and that that I'd be very worried about much more so than the national champions. Um, and China, yes, I agree, but that's different. That's trade policy. I think mm-hmm. we have something called reciprocal agreements, which is if I open my markets to you, you should open your markets to me. Clearly, the Chinese are not playing by the by the, mm-hmm. the rules of the game there, um, and the Europeans have been too weak to call uh, to to call it. And I think we should we should be more aggressive on that.
0: Excellent. Um, a question uh, from one of our LSE uh, master students, uh, Ruodi Lee. Um, he's asking that one of the uh, great graphs that you presented, uh, total lobbying expenditure peaked, uh, expenditures peaked in 2009 and 10, uh, just after the global financial crisis. Um, what is your prediction uh, in the post pandemic era? Uh, would there be a decline? Well, let's hope. Uh, would there be a new record, or or, or what do
1: you
0: think? Mm. Lobbying more, more lobbying, less lobbying. I don't uh, think
1: I, I, the peak is in part a fluke of the fact that the data reporting mm. has become weaker after 2010. Okay. Um, I think there was a, there was a very big increase in in banking lobbying uh, post '09, obviously because uh, of all the banking regulations happening. Um, in recent years, the big increase in lobbying has been by the big tech, okay? Um, so that's going to continue in the U.S. Um, in Europe, um, I'm not sure that it's going to change that much. Um, I mean, the airlines, don't, they, they, look, they don't need to lobby the same way because they have, the, it's called Air France, okay? The name is in the title. So the way they lobby is saying, do you want Air France <laughs> to go down? Lufthansa is the same, right? So it's not the same. I don't think it's going to go through the same channel. Um, But on that front, let me just one thing that's uh, important to keep in mind is there is virtue in having global companies and and regulators in different regions. And just, I think everybody should keep in mind two examples Um, Google and Volkswagen. Okay? If it was not thanks to a bunch of kids in, in some NGO in the US, we would still be killing ourselves with diesels in europe okay because the regulators in europe were utterly corrupt okay it was pure corruption 100% corruption by the car industry to prevent the release of the data that diesel was bad okay and they were cheating like crazy on all the tests this was found out first by some ngo and then by the california regulator thanks to them we're going to save lives in europe okay that's that's what happened um, on the other hand, think about Google. Google lobbied so hard in Washington that nobody tried to do anything against them. The only people who tried to do something against them were in Brussels because they were not corrupt to the same extent because Google didn't have the same influence there. And now the Americans, if and when they decide to do something with respect to big tech, can learn from uh, European experience. The same thing with data protection. Okay, When we did the data protection uh, initiative in Europe, um, The Americans made fun of us. Two years later, they copied it in California. So that's one thing where clearly there's a a great value in having some outside uh, regulators who are not influenced by your own companies. And we both benefit from it.
0: Mm -hmm. Great. Um, We haven't named the baby uh, in this uh, lecture too much or at all. Um inequality, what does this whole great reversal means for inequality
1: in the u s well it, it it increases capital income and it, decre- yeah. it de- first of all it decreases the, the the pie for everybody but clearly, as we discussed earlier it's much worse yes. for people who earn labor so if you think about why is it that it's not the only reason but if you think about why is it that the middle class in the US feels squeezed out it's because they are squeezed out by high prices. I mean, if you pay just remember the numbers are staggering. If you if you want broadband connection in Washington DC, you have Comcast. They're going to charge you more than $100 per month. Same thing with your cell phone. So if you're a taxi driver in Washington DC, you start the month with $250 of telecom bills just to get a cell phone and an internet connection. Right? This is the numbers we're talking about. It's not small potatoes. So no wonder these guys feel like they are being ripped off and their standards of living are not increasing. Now, to be honest though, the the elephant in the room there in the US mm-hmm. is the healthcare system. So clearly yes. the healthcare system in the US is the biggest tax on labor and on the middle class ever engineered by mankind. I mean, this is 10% of GDP of pure waste. Maybe okay, say 8% mm-hmm. of GDP, right? <laughs> uh even in the like so France, Germany, countries that spend a lot on healthcare, we are around 10, 11% of GDP. The US is clo- close to 20. A full 8% of it is rents. Okay. That's a gigantic amount of money. It's a huge tax on labor and on the middle class. Um, of course, people who earn, uh, dividend income are very happy because all these big pharma and hospitals, they all pay large dividends and uh, wages of doctors. But that's a ripoff. So this is that's where the meat is, okay. Um, and if you could do something about that, that would have a massive impact on inequality, obviously. Um, Roska, just to add the, yes. on Yes, uh, just uh, Angela, just... one
0: second. We are very mindful of the time. Yeah. Just uh, yes, yes. Okay. Be... Yeah, no, <laughs> thank nah, 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 thank you.
2: Just close by saying actually that uh, the. Uh, actually COVID in a way exacerbates all of these because we mm-hmm. thought that it would be a great leveler uh, of inequalities that the, the, the first evidence shows actually the complete opposite.
0: Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, excellent. There are so many good questions, excellent questions. Um, one that I, I, I couldn't ask because I, I think it will require a new book from you, uh, Professor Filippo. Uh, is hard. How do you think about these things in, in the context of developing countries to the extent that data allows this analysis? Um, and uh, But we have to close, unfortunately. I, I, I want to thank uh, so much uh, Professor Philippon for his time. We know that you are very busy. And we are very grateful that uh, that uh, that you took the time to to be with us. Uh, also, Angelo Martelli, thank you, Angelo, uh, for for your insightful comments. And thank you, all of us, all of you um, around the you know the globe, really, um, to have participated in our discussion. Those who haven't received um, answers to their questions, I can tell you, you know, just buy the book on Amazon. Uh, of course, is no, the these days. Your, uh, <laughs> you can order
1: it from your local. Uh, though.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Well, I, I did, I, you know, I, I got it on, on Kindle. Um, it, it's great and and, um, and um, uh, we, of course, will be having more of these seminars. Tomorrow we will have a joint seminar with CPR uh, on, on India's COVID response. We hope that many of you uh, will be able to join us. And and again, uh, uh, Professor Philippon, next time we hope to not only virtually, but in person to see you in London at the LSE. Thank you so much, you in the too. name of all of thank us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye, Thank you, thank you, thank you, very much. Thank you Bye. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.